Thaddeus Williams, in his book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, a book I highly recommend to you, he discusses the European painter Paul Gogwin, who, who was influenced by Jacques Rousseau and uh, Rousseau's philosophy that man is naturally good. Now, Rousseau's had a huge impact on, on the Western um, perspective and worldview, a negative one. But Rousseau taught that man is naturally good, and it's by our institutions alone that men become wicked. And so the problem is outside of us. It's not fundamentally inside of us. And, and Gogwin, this painter, who was very famous and successful in Europe, he was deeply impacted by Rousseau's philosophy, who in so doing determined that Western civilization, in particular European civilization, was hopelessly oppressive. And so he left his family, he left his fame, as an artist, and he went to Tahiti to escape all of that. And he thought he would find Rousseau's famous noble savage. Maybe you've heard that term, the noble savage. That is, the uncivilized person who symbolizes the innate goodness of one who's not been exposed to the corrupting influences of civilization. He thought he would find that noble savage in Tahiti. Instead of paradise, he found an island full of people enslaved to alcoholism, rampant STD, broken families, etc. And he came to this conclusion, Godwin did. He realized that evil is not an exclusively white or Western problem. It's a human problem a human problem. This problem we can see even more clearly with some very unpopular but true facts drawn from the African-American scholar Thomas Sowell, his book Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Listen to these stats. At least a million Europeans were enslaved by North African pirates from 1500 to 1800. The Europeans who were enslaved in North Africa were despised and abused because they were Christians. You won't hear that on CNN. Europeans enslaved other Europeans. Asians enslaved other Asians. Africans enslaved other Africans. And the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere. It was the Africans who enslaved their fellow Africans, selling some of these slaves to Europeans or to Arabs and keeping others for themselves. Even at the peak, now I found this one interesting, of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans retained more slaves for themselves than they sent to the West. There were also slave plantations in East Africa, and some African and Asian slave owners used their slaves as human sacrifices in their pagan religious practices. Arabs were the leading slave traders in East Africa. China, in centuries past, and we could even say modern-day China, have been described as one of the largest markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. Slavery is also common in India, where it's been estimated that there were more slaves in India than in the entire Western Hemisphere. Slavery was an established institution in the West before Columbus. Brazil imported several times as many slaves in the U.S. and perhaps consumed more slaves than other, any other nation in history, Brazil. Even in colonial America... White indentured servants were auctioned often. The tragic fact is that, and this is Thomas Sowell, slavery, while illegal in every nation on the planet, 
is practiced in every nation by and against people of every skin color to the tune of over 40 million victims of modern-day slavery. According to 2018 Global Slavery Index, the 10 countries with the highest prevalence of modern-day slavery are North Korea, Eritrea, Burundi, the Central African Republic, Afghanistan, Mauritania, South Sudan, Pakistan, Cambodia, and Iran. Now what these stats reveal is that wickedness is never associated with a single ethnicity. With critical race theory, you have the oppressor group and then everyone else is oppressed. And what these stats would reveal is that we're all oppressors. We're all sinners. But here's my point. Though slavery has been practiced throughout history, it's been Christians of all skin colors. It's been Christians of all ethnicities and all continents who have fanned the flame of the abolition of slavery around the world. It was the Christian movement. And the gospel principles in Philemon were a major catalyst and have been a major catalyst for the abolition of slavery. It's not been some kind of secular, anti-gospel, atheistic worldview like critical race theory. It's been the gospel principles found in letters like Paul's letter to Philemon. Philemon was written around 62 AD. It was written around the same time, the same imprisonment, when Paul was in prison that you can read about at the end of Acts. It's long, uh, Philemon along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians are known as the prison epistles. Paul is writing those letters from a Roman jail. And, and there's a twofold theme uh, to this letter that makes it so very important. First of all, the power of the gospel to transform individual lives. You can look with me in verse 11 where we see that. Paul writes of Onesimus. Formerly he was useless to you, but now indeed useful to you and me. The gospel has the power and only the gospel to transform lives. Again, atheistic worldviews like critical race theory have no power. All these philosophies can do is divide, not change anything or anyone. The second purpose of this letter is that not only does the power of the gospel come to transform lives, verse 11, but it has the power to transform relationships. You see that in verse 16, where we read here, Receive him, Paul writes to Philemon, no longer as a bondservant. Maybe your translation has slave, or you have a footnote there. Receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a bondservant, slave, as a beloved brother. And so Philemon's twofold purpose is to show us the gospel has the power to change lives and it has the power to change relationships. Now, who is Philemon? He was a wealthy, well-to-do, slave-holding Christian uh, who lived in, in Colossae. Evidently, during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, Philemon and Colossae was somewhat close to, to Ephesus, about 100 miles. Pretty good jaunt, but it was in the area. During that three-year period, evidently, Philemon heard Paul preach the gospel and was converted to Jesus Christ. And so he began to serve the Lord Jesus in Colossae, and it appears that he was a part of the first church plant, the church plant in Colossae. So when Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, he would have been writing to the church that met 
in Philemon's home. And so at some point, one of his slaves named Onesimus ran away. And he made his way to Rome, which was about a thousand miles. But he was in a lot of trouble for running away. So it makes sense that he went to Rome. Rome was thriving. It would have been easy to get lost in the shuffle in that big city. And so this runaway slave makes his way to Rome. And we don't know how this came about. Scripture doesn't tell us. But in the providence of God, he meets Paul who's in prison. And he is converted by the power of the gospel as Paul shared the gospel with Onesimus. But he was in big trouble. Because he was guilty of two capital crimes. The first crime was running away. He was a runaway slave. And and the second crime was for theft. He had evidently stolen from Philemon. And these were capital crimes because they were sins against the existing social order of the day. Certainly a broken social order. No one would justify that order. It was a wicked broken order, but it was the social order of the day. If permitted to go unchecked, a runaway slave who stole from his master, this would have meant the demise of slavery and the demise of the Roman Empire for that matter because the Roman Empire was built on the back of of slaves. And so insubordinate slaves, if not put to death, and oftentimes they were put to death, They were branded on the forehead with the letter F for, in Latin, fugitivus, fugitive. Or the letters CF for, in Latin, cave furum, beware of thief. So they wore that wherever they went. In fact, in the same time period in which Philemon was written, and you can can look this up, there was a certain man named Pedinius Secundus. If you want to know how to spell it, just a normal spelling. Um, he was a wealthy Roman who was murdered by one of his 400 slaves. And during the trial, the, uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us that the prosecution called for the execution of all 400 slaves to make a point, to give an example So the prosecution won, and the 400 slaves were publicly executed as an example. Now, this could have easily been Onesimus' fate. But in a remarkable act of providence, which is not shared in the letter, Onesimus somehow came into contact with the Apostle Paul, and the gospel's powerful. We need to remember that. Uh, Sometimes we, we lose sight of that when we're out and about and we're surrounded with unbelievers, I think deep down we think there's no way that person could ever trust in Jesus. The gospel is powerful. He came into contact with with Paul, and the Spirit of God worked regeneration, repentance, and faith in this runaway slave. And as a result, he began to co-labor with the apostle Paul, who was obviously limited by his imprisonment. In other words, Onesimus' life was was gloriously changed. And now Paul and Onesimus know that Onesimus' broken relationship with Philemon has to be restored. It's the mark of a Christian. You cannot allow unbroken or broken relationships to remain broken as much depends on us. And so Onesimus knows that. He knows that they need to be reconciled because now Onesimus is a Christian and he knows Philemon is a Christian and the wrongdoing has to be addressed. And a providential opportunity arose because Tychicus was planning to go to that area and deliver two letters that Paul had written to the church at Colossae and to the church at Ephesus, the letter we have been studying on Sunday morning. And so he can deliver this personal card to Philemon in the process. That is the letter to Philemon. 
That brings us to the first part of this. And we're going to see, even before he gets to the ultimate issue that he's writing, we see Paul's exemplary praise and prayer at the beginning of this letter. Look with me in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and so like his letter to the Ephesians, he writes as a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Now, why would he remind Philemon that he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus? Because he's going he's gonna to call Philemon to do some, some pretty difficult things here in this letter. And he is reminding him, I'm not writing from a Roman country club. I'm writing from a Roman prison for the sake of Jesus. And so Jesus is worthy to sacrifice greatly for. He reminds him of that. And Timothy, our brother, so maybe Timothy was serving as the, the scribe here, or, or maybe Timothy in some way was, was helping Paul with this letter. But he says, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. I love that. And so Philemon was not a pastor. He was like you. He was a Christian churchman. He is, he is a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. It is a glorious thing to be a layperson in Christ's church, redeemed by the blood of Christ, an agent of the gospel, a fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister. So many believe, and it's hard to prove this, many believe that Aphia is Philemon's wife and Archippus his son. It's hard to know that for sure. But Aphi, our sister, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. And the reason they met in houses is that the church at that point did not have public buildings. They didn't have the sanction of, of the government. And, and so it's, a, it's possible and probable that Archippus was the pastor of this church. Now, why would I say that? Because in the letter to the Colossians, which would have been sent by Tychicus along with this letter, he describes Archippus this way in Colossians 4.17. Archippus, fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. The end of chapter 4, he admonishes Archippus to fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. And here he calls Archippus a fellow soldier. But notice, he's not just writing to Philemon... He's writing to Aphia and Archippus, and notice, and the church in your house, which means this is not just an individual letter. It's certainly that, a personal letter, but this is a, a letter that the church in Colossae, the church at Fisherville, needs to read and heed. And in keeping with the, the way Paul begins a letter, notice in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as, as he does elsewhere in his letters, Paul is doing more than just offering a greeting here. Uh, this is an inspired way to begin his letters. This really sums up his gospel-centric theology, grace and peace. Uh, salvation is all of grace. We know that. It is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Peace is the result. Grace produces peace. Without this grace, we do not have peace. We do not have peace with God. We do not have peace with humankind. And we don't have peace in our hearts. Grace produces peace. In other words, the war is over. Paul is reminding Philemon the war is over. He is preparing Philemon for the words he's about to share with him, hard words, by preaching to his soul, grace and peace to you, Philemon. Philemon, you have experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You were once a rebel. You were once, metaphorically, a runaway slave you had declared war on God's kingdom, and now that war is over. He is reminding Philemon of who he is. And more importantly, what God has done for him in Jesus Christ. 
And that's why Paul makes so much here of Jesus before he even gets to the purpose of the letter. Uh, Indeed, he mentions the Lord Jesus Christ by name six times in this very first part of this letter. And notice here, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. The Lord referring to the fact that Jesus is master. It also also harkens back to the, the reality of Yahweh of the Old Testament. He is Lord. He is Jesus. That's his human name. And in taking on human flesh, he was, he was speaking to the value, the dignity of the image of God, which was a crushing blow to the concept of slavery. And he is also the Christ. He is the anointed one. As we saw in our study of Samuel, David was the Christ. He was the Messiah, the anointed one who pointed us to the one who would come ultimately to redeem his people. Then he comes to... His prayer, he says, I thank my God, verse 4, always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus Christ and for all the saints. Now, how do you hear about faith and love? It seems to be a private exercise, doesn't it? Well, faith and love always go public. And Philemon's life was such that his faith in Christ and his love for the saints was notorious. It was was so public. It It was so expressive that Paul had heard about it a thousand miles away. I pray when we make our way to Auburn, I continue to hear about the faith and love of my family, our family at Fisherville. And that's what he is hearing about here, about uh, Philemon. He's reminding Philemon of his faith and his love. And he says in verse 6, he says, I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, this is one of the most important verses in Philemon. And it's not the easiest to, to break down, but it's a very important verse. I pray that the sharing of your faith. Now, that word sharing is the word koinonia. Uh, so you could... You could Translate that sharing or your partnership in the faith, your fellowship in the faith. That's the word koinonia. We all know that term. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, notice, may become effective for the full knowledge. So he's already said his faith is active. Paul has all recognized that Philemon's faith is active. Now he wants it to be effective in relation to his former slave or his, his slave who has run away, Anisimus. So he says, I pray that your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Every good thing here refers to every blessing which Philemon has as a Christian in Jesus Christ, which requires, it appears, Knowledge to appropriate. A knowledge through the sharing of his faith. In other words, he's, he's praying that his faith will be operative and seen in how he receives Onesimus. Paul is never satisfied with us just having theological knowledge. Having taught at seminary for 15 years and being a full-time student myself for nine years. I can just speak to myself. I'll just criticize myself. I can tell you in the early years of my seminary existence, I was more concerned about theological knowledge than I was loving people. All right? And so knowledge is critical, but it's not sufficient. Paul is not impressed with guys that can make A's in theology. He, He wants you to exercise your knowledge, exercise your faith. It should become operative. In the, in the lives of those that God has surrounded you with. That's what he's praying for here. And as he prays this, he prays this. Notice in verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. Listen. The joy-filled life is large. It, it's the work of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But again, the Spirit uses means. 
And, and joy often comes in the context of body life. All right? The Lord uses God's people to, to work joy in us. All right? And you've all been there. You, you've kind of been down and you, you, you thought about, maybe I don't even feel like going to church today. And you go and you're deeply encouraged by a brother or sister in the faith. And he says, I have derived much joy and comfort. Oftentimes we come and our, our spirits are anxious and we're, we're struggling in a particular area of our lives. And, and so we're, we're worried we're heavy laden, and God brings comfort through the saints. He says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. I'm so grateful. Some people, and I've, I've, I've said this for 11 years here, I don't judge anyone who doesn't come on Sunday nights. Everybody has their various reasons for not coming on Sunday nights. Some people are so busy, maybe the best thing they could do for their family is to stay home on a Sunday night. But I just want you, us to realize that coming to church is a real means of grace. It's not that we're impressing God. We're not earning stripes. We're not earning favor with God. We already have favor with God in Jesus Christ. But God has promised blessing in the presence of his people. And here, the saints have been refreshed. Their hearts have been refreshed through Philemon. And that brings us, he has prepared Philemon up to this point with his prayer and his praise, with his evangelical plea. And I say evangelical plea, not in the sense that Philemon needs evangelizing. I say it in the sense that it is a gospel-centered plea. We're going to see here, we can learn about parenting here. We can learn about how to minister to any brother or sister in the faith here. He doesn't just lay commands on him. He brings the gospel to bear. It's a remarkable passage. And this section played a critical role and has played a critical role in the abolition of slavery in the history of, of the church. Well, notice really in verse 8, he says, accordingly. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. And the reason he can command Philemon is because he's an apostle. He, has, he bears the very authority of Christ himself. All right? Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake. Boy, this is so important. Verse 9 is so critical for understanding the Christian life. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. And so what he wants Philemon to do is not because it's mere duty for him to do. He wants Philemon to respond out of love. In other words, why we do what we do is as important as that we do it. The Christian life is a response of love. Now, I, I could just ask this question. What if you don't feel love and you have a duty before you? So, for instance, let's say you're driving down the road on a rainy, stormy evening. You've had a long day at work and you see an elderly lady on the side of the road who needs her tire changed. She's had a flat tire. And you're tired and you want to get home to eat. And you remember this sermon. You say, well, it's for love's sake that I must do things. And I don't feel any love right now. I just want to get home. Well, do, you, do you just pass her by? No. You stop anyway. And with your bad attitude, you change her tire. But you do it repentantly. You see? In other words, duty is not sufficient. Now, Duty directs, but it's not sufficient. Uh, in other words, it's for love's sake. That is the Christian life. Our response should be for love's sake. So when we don't sense love, we don't feel love, what do we do? We do it anyway. We do it repentantly. And, and so he wants Philemon to respond to him, not just because he's an apostle and because Paul told him to do it, 
that's not going to have a, a, a permanent change in his life. He wants Philemon to respond for love's sake. He says, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus. Now, this is the first time that we read about Onesimus. Onesimus is the purpose for which he's writing, but this is the first time we read his name, Onesimus. And he calls him my child. Why? Because Paul was the one who led Onesimus to Christ. And so anyone you lead to Christ, in some sense, becomes your spiritual child. He said, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you. Now, there is a play on words here. Now, Onesimus' name, and it was a slave name. He was likely born into slavery in Rome, was useful. That's what his name means. So, Paul is using a pun here. Formerly, useful was useless to you, in other words. But now, he is indeed useful to you and to me. And so he uses two adjectives here, useless and useful, related to the name Unesimus to drive home the spiritual transformation that has taken place in Onesimus' life. The gospel has taken hold in this runaway slave's life. A thief on top of that. A runaway slave who has stolen from Philemon. And he says in verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I tell you this, And this is convicting to me. If we as the people of God would be more concerned with investing in the lives of lost people, I think there would be less division on Twitter. There'd be less division in the churches. I mean, to be able to describe this this slave, this thief, as his very heart... um, to me, that is exemplary. It is, it's an example. It's convicting for me. Um, so in verse 10, he's Paul's child. Here, he is Paul's very heart. In verse 13, I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. So, Onesimus in some way had been serving Paul in his imprisonment. And Paul wants to keep him. He's been very useful to him. But I preferred to do nothing, verse 14, without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. Again, That is the Christian life. Remember what Paul says in Corinthians? God loves a cheerful giver. I was at a church in Nashville one time, and one of the elders of the church, before the offering, told the church, God loves a cheerful giver, so if you can't give cheerfully, don't give at all. And then the teaching pastor followed him and said, well, he'll take uncheerful giving as well. (laughs) But the reality is, There's a very important point there. Yes, we should give even when we can't be cheerful, but we should give repentantly. Because here's the Christian life. That your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. In other words, you own it. You're doing it out of love. You're doing it out of gratitude. And being aware of that is half the battle. Because let's be honest. Oftentimes, what we do, we do out of duty. And if that's all you got, then abide by that duty. We're to be dutiful. That's a responsibility for a Christian. But if you recognize that 
love is missing. Thanksgiving, gratitude is missing. Then do your duty, but do it repentantly. He says that your goodness might not be by compulsion. I don't want you to do this because you have to. I want you to do it because you want to. Verse 15, for this perhaps is why he was parted from from you for a while. Paul even sees providence in a slave running away and stealing from Philemon, which is a negative thing for Philemon. Not in any way justifying slavery. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it would have been a negative providence for Philemon because he would have depended on Onesimus and obviously the material things that Onesimus stole from him. Paul says, there's maybe something redeeming about what happened. This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. I love that. And then verse 16. Verse 16 is one of the most important verses in the history of the church that fueled the abolition of slavery. No longer that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave. ESV says bondservant. I think it's a better translation to say slave. Footnote there may tell you that. That you may have him back forever no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me. How much more to you? Notice, both in the flesh and in the Lord. I love that. So this is the first time in the letter slave or bondservant is used. But I do want to speak to this. And one of the reasons I chose this passage is because, again, there's this, even in many churches today, this belief that we can glean truths from critical race theory that can benefit us. And it's built on atheism, and it's, it actually competes for the gospel or with the gospel as another counter-gospel. The scripture is sufficient for everything we need in our country for, for unity, for reconciliation. It's already been achieved through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to speak to this for a moment because during the Civil War, both sides, pro-slave, anti-slave, used the Bible to make their case for or against slavery. One of the popular arguments was if slavery is so wrong... Why is Scripture silent on it? Well, let me first of all speak about slavery in the Old Testament. We have to think about slavery in the Old Testament and and slavery in the Roman Empire. Um, Old Testament slavery, first of all, was apples and oranges to chattel slavery in American history. Two completely different kinds of slavery. Uh, Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15 include Case laws addressing issues of slavery. But central to this, Exodus 21, listen to this, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. And so slavery was never permanent under the Old Testament. So even though the, the possibility of slavery was assumed, it was a temporary measure due to the economic circumstances of the slave. It was a way, for instance, a slave could get out from from having debt, among other particular cases. J. Murray Harris Harris said that slaves under the Old Covenant were treated more like hired hands rather than slaves. And then there was the seventh year where they were redeemed out of their slavery. Now, in the New Testament, with regard to slavery in Rome... Paul gives us instructions to regulate slavery and in so doing brings about a holy subversion in the process. Alexander McLaren is very helpful here. Listen to this. The message of Christianity is primarily to individuals and only secondarily to society. And that's one of my issues with with pastors who spend a lot of their time today critiquing the culture. You don't ever see Paul critiquing the culture. He's more concerned with the church. He recognizes that's the way you change the culture 
It starts in the church. And here's what he says. It leaves the units whom it has influenced to influence the mass. In other words, the New Testament assumes if you get the church, the culture will follow. All right? It acts on spiritual and moral sentiment and only afterwards and consequently on institutions. So it meddles directly with no political or social arrangements but lays down principles which will profoundly affect these. Had the early church begun this concentrated crusade against slavery, they would have been crushed by the empire and the gospel would have been confused with a social political program. Of course, believers are called to be salt of the earth. We're called to be light of the world. And our influence is to be felt in the culture. But Christians in the empire in the first century could not work through local democratic political structures. So they had no political power to affect change. The change had to come from within. Dick Lucas writes, a burning appeal. And I love this. This is the power of the sufficiency of scripture. A burning appeal to an unknown house church, Philemon, is Paul's way to begin to change the world. I love that. The kingdom comes through mustard seed, by mustard seed, right? A burning appeal to an unknown house church is his way to begin to change the world. It is decidedly less impressive than a grand pronouncement of an ideal to a wider audience. In other words, he could have virtue signaled and just renounced the entire system of slavery and, and, the, and the culture. But long, he says, but long after such rhetoric would be forgotten, the influence of a letter, albeit an inspired letter, like this would spread from life to life and group to group. I love that. That's why what we're doing here tonight is the most important thing on the planet. There's nothing more important than what is happening in Christ's church. In other words, with inspired wisdom, Paul enables the gospel to progress in a society that approved slavery while planting seeds for its demise. He's planting seeds for its demise with this inspired letter. And other letters that address slavery. We'll look at Ephesians 6 next week. And he addresses slaves and slave masters. But verse 16 here, I put a star in my Bible next to verse 16 because it's the heart of the lever, the heart of the letter. Notice, Anesthemus is to be received no longer as a slave. And he says, and this not only in the Lord. Not only in the Lord... In other words, the spiritual affairs of the congregation, but also in the flesh. He says, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? Notice that phrase, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is one of the central phrases that hammered the death nail to slavery. In the concept of slavery. Paul seems to be saying subtly. You receive him back. Not just as a brother. In the spirit or in the Lord. You, you receive him back as a brother in the flesh. You treat him equally. Not just in the church. But outside the church as well. Notice in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner. You receive him as you would receive me. You treat Onesimus the way you would treat the Apostle Paul. When you see him, you should see me. You treat him, you receive him as you would receive me. And I love this. Think of the term imputation here. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, that's why most scholars believe he stole something. You charge that to my account. What does that sound like? 
That sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? And the gospel produces people who imitate Christ. That's what it does. The transformation that takes place in the gospel. If he owes you anything, you charge it to my account. We owed God everything. And it was charged to Christ's account. That's what we mean by imputation. It was imputed to him. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. Why would he say that? He wants it to be confirmed that no one, uh, you know, is writing a forgery. I'm writing with my own handwriting. I write this with my own hand. I will repay it. If he owes you anything, I'll repay it to say nothing. And he reminds Philemon that he owes Paul a great deal as well. To say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. At this point, he takes this pen and he grabs it out of the secretary's, secretary's hand. Maybe it was Timothy who was writing this. And he, he essentially writes this IOU with his own hand. Then verse 20, yes, brother, I want some benefit from you. In the Lord. Again, we miss the pun in English. The word in verse 20, benefit, has the same root as Onesimus. It has the same root. He's saying, Onesimus is your benefit. He is your benefit. Refresh me, refresh my heart in Christ. How does he refresh, his, refresh Paul's heart in Christ? By responding to this gospel appeal. Verse 21, confidence, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. He believes the gospel will take such traction in Onesimus or, or Philemon's life than, that Philemon would respond in a way that exceeds even Paul's expectations. That's the trust that Paul has in the gospel. And when, when someone has, has, has received the gospel... Um, that's normally what you see. You see people grow and mature and, and you see God use them in ways that, that you never envisioned. That you will do more than I even say. In other words, you're going to read between the lines. At the same time, notice the personal aspect of this, prepare a guest room for me. I think he's reminding Philemon, I'm coming to Colossae. Now, that could be some accountability there, too. Philemon thinks, well, if he's coming, I better, I better respond favorably to this. Paul's using all kinds of motivations here. He's using subtle apostolic commands. They're real subtle. He's using the gospel most centrally. But he's also reminding him, I'm coming. I'm, it's like, um, kids, you better you, you clean your room. Because in 30 minutes, I'm coming upstairs. That has an effect. And then he says, for I'm hoping that through your prayers. By the way, when we pray for people, it's hard to have a negative feeling or response to them, don't, isn't it? I am praying, I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. That reminds me of Philippians. He wrote Philippians at the same time, Philippians 1.19. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This is just one of those verses that reminds us you don't have to understand the mystery of prayer to know that God answers prayer. If we believed what the Bible says about prayer, we would probably pray more than we do anything else. And then he closes with this, uh, the end of this section. Epaphras, final greetings, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. We read about Epaphras in Colossians. That's why some people have called Philemon Colossians 5. It's like a, an appendix to Colossians. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus. We, we read about Aristarchus in Acts 19. Demas. Ooh, this reminds us that Demas... The Apostle Paul was not omniscient. His word was inspired. At this point, he has no clue that Demas is going to forsake him, having loved this present world. 2 Timothy chapter 4. It reminds us 
that there will be those who profess faith in Jesus and who are with God's people for a time, but because they love this present world will ultimately turn from the faith. So here Demas is with him in jail, serving Paul, supporting Paul, but in time Demas will turn from the faith. And he says, and Luke, my fellow workers. What's remarkable here, Paul wrote 13 uh, letters of the New Testament. Mark wrote one. Luke wrote two. Some heavy hitters in this jail with Paul. And then he closes, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's what we could pray. He ends Galatians that way as well, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with our spirits. Of course, when grace is at work, the story continues with great fruitfulness, always. Many believe that Philemon, in response to Paul's desire to have Onesimus back, and it appears that Paul wants Onesimus back, he returned him to Paul. And history suggests this. We don't get this from the Bible, we get it from early church history. A few decades later, when Ignatius, one of the great Christian martyrs, was being transported from Antioch to Rome to be executed from it for his faith, he wrote a series of letters to certain churches. And he wrote a letter to Ephesus. And in that letter to Ephesus, he praised their bishop, a man named Onesimus. And... If that is the same Onesimus, and I tend to believe, along with many scholars, that it is, all we can say is, isn't grace amazing? The most useless, that was the language he used, rebellious of us, in this case a runaway slave who stole from his master, can have our trajectories changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and often through others who have been changed themselves. In this case, Philemon. It is those truths that bring about true reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful letter. It took an imprisonment for Paul to be able to write this. It was a negative at the time for the great apostle to be enslaved, to be put in behind bars. At the time, if we had been his friends, we would have said, Lord, why? Why? Why does this great missionary have to be behind bars? And yet we know that at least five letters would not have been written that we have in our New Testament had Paul not been incarcerated. We thank you for that negative providence that has benefited the church for 2,000 years. And we thank you for the truce of Philemon. We thank you, Lord, for this letter that reminds us what a true gospel response is. That we are to do things not out of compulsion, but out of our own accord for love's sake. A love that was supremely demonstrated and exemplified in the person and work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. May these truths be imprinted on all of our hearts. And we ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.